I want to offer my gratitude to you guys here at Christ Community Church. I had planned to say some really nice, sweet things about you, and then all of our pastors got up and said how much they appreciate you. So I do um, just want to um, copy and paste their words here. It's an honor to get to serve uh, alongside the brothers here uh, that pastor you. You are a faithful congregation, and you show up week in and week out, and so just know that, that we love you dearly. Um, this week, we're going to continue on in our uh, Elder Summer Series, Preaching Christ Through the Psalms. We are reading through uh, several different psalms. Uh, the psalm from last week, which Pastor Zach taught us from the Holy Scripture, as well as our psalm today, both belong in book one of five in the psalms, also uh, referred to as the Psalter. Uh, and so one thing I want to mention before we get started here is is just as you go through this summer series, to be reminded uh, of the way in which the Psalms has been used uh, amongst God's people throughout uh, human history. Uh, God has used the Psalms greatly to speak to us uh, in deep ways. One commentator uh, puts it this way. He says, the Psalms are transparent, passionate, emotive, personal, and genuine, and they provide believers with language with, with which to express their own deepest emotions and passions. And John Calvin uh, referred to the Psalter as an anatomy of all parts of the soul. So let this series uh, wash over you uh, anew week in and week out for the next several weeks. Let us read from our psalm today. We're going to be in Psalm 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to be in Psalm 2. You hear the word of the Lord this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, Jesus. the word of the Lord. God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come in prayer, lifting up the anointed one, the king who has been set on your holy hill, Zion. We pray that you would use this sermon, that you would use these words to glorify Christ. We pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to so encourage and rebuke us wherever needed. 
We pray this song would wash over this people to conform them into the image of our Lord Jesus. We pray these things in the name of King Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In 1994, Disney released the classic motion picture, The Lion King. This film is uh, considered amongst many uh, who are correct uh, to be the greatest Disney film of all time. For some of you, this story uh, is one that reminds you uh, of old classic literature like Shakespeare or even stories from the Bible. And for some of you, it was just a really fun story that allowed your imagination to be captured once again. One thing that this movie does, which Disney does so well, is it is filled with songs, right? Songs that uh, we can sing along to, songs that we uh, can all uh, virtually sing uh, all along throughout the whole of uh, the movie. And there is a very strong curiosity amongst some as to why it is that we can memorize songs so well. Why is it that we can memorize songs that we heard on the radio this week, but it's near impossible to go memorize uh, a chapter of the book or the Bible uh, or some other larger text? This is because songs stick with us in ways that other things don't. And so God has in his own divine providence provided us with a song book, a prayer book, for us to read and to digest and to commit to our hearts and to our memories. One of the songs I want to point to in The Lion King that has uh, importance for us as we think about Psalm 2 this morning comes from the chief villain, Scar, called Be Prepared. Does anyone in here remember the song Be Prepared? Jay does. The song Be Prepared. Listen to this following exchange uh, from Scar and some of the hyenas uh, that are uh, beginning to plot against uh, the rightful king. I'm not going to sing it for you, so. <laughs> On that, you're welcome. Scar, Scar, Scar says, be prepared. And the hyenas respond, for what? And Scar says, for the death of the king. And they, and they respond somewhat ignorantly. They say, why is he sick? And Scar says, no, fool, we're going to kill him. And Simba too. And they respond, great idea. Who needs a king? No king, no king. La, 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 la. <laughs> Scar responds, idiots, there will be a king. And like anyone who has an inquisitive child, you know what is coming next. They say, eh, but you said. And he responds before they can finish. He says, I will be king. Stick with me and you'll never grow hungry again. Here lies the dilemma of our text, our song this morning, and it is this. Who gets to be king, and whose kingdom are we standing behind? Psalm 1 and 2 introduce the entire Psalter uh, to two key themes uh, that will be displayed throughout the whole rest of God's prayer book, and it is these two things. The first, which Pastor Zach taught us last week, uh, which is contrasting the ways of the righteous with the ways of the wicked. The second theme that is traced all throughout the Psalms 
is that of the Lord and his King. Psalm 2 this morning speaks to us about this rebellious impulse that we have and that we have seen among the nations when it comes to responding to God's anointed, the Christ. As we look into Psalm 2, one thing I want to make clear to us is that Psalm 2, as we saw this morning in our call to worship, is a psalm that has explicit Christ-centered interpretations in the New Testament. In Acts 4, which is what we read from, uh, in Acts 13 as well, this psalm is quoted twice in a Christocentric way in the, both, in the book of Acts. So when we read this uh, song or this poem, we must do so in light of who Jesus is as the son of David, the Messiah. A second thing we want to kind of point to, uh, just to take note of, as Pastor Kevin read this morning, uh, Peter and John ascribe authorship to David. This is something you don't get just reading the, the psalm. The New Testament interprets the old. We began today by asking the question of who gets to be king and whose kingdom that we are standing by. And that chief villain, Scar, was right about one thing. There will be a king. And when the first and second psalm kick off the Psalter, uh, we are struck with this compelling question, and it is this, who is this king? Last week again, we saw the contrast between the man who follows God and delights in his words, and this week we will see the king for whom God has set on his holy hill, the one who will rule over all of the earth. So who is this man who lived and delighted in the law? Who is this son of God who has given the reign over all the nations? Jesus is both the righteous man of Psalm 1 who walks in the ways of the righteous, and Jesus is the one in Psalm 2 who will rule forever. Psalms 1 and 2 introduce this big idea I want you to take away from you today. If you take away anything, take this away. This is what Psalm 2 tells us and what the whole book of Psalms really is all about. It's this. God will save his people through Jesus Christ, the son of David and keeper of God's law. I'll repeat that for you. God will save his people through Jesus Christ, the son of God and the keeper of God's law. Everything else in the prayer and songbook of God serves that end. And it shows what the son of David will do that God's people never could. Let us jump into our text, our song this morning. If you will, draw your attention with me to Psalm 2, verses 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 3. Uh, this song is broken into four stanzas, if you will, uh, four, uh, four scenes, the first of which I've entitled Raging Against the Anointed. David tells us this. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do people do what they do? The nations in this song stand in continuity with those of the, uh, Psalm 1 uh, who practice the ways of the wicked. Steve Lawson aptly points out that Psalm 2 portrays this ongoing 
rebellion of a lost world against God and his son. The nations rage. They are agitated. They're furiously motivated to act. They boil up, and yet they plot in vain. In verse 1, the Hebrew for plot is the same word in chapter 1 that is translated uh, as meditates. So chapter 1 talks to us about the one who meditates uh, on God's word, who delights in his ways. And it is contrasted here with those who plot or meditate against God. You see, meditation itself, uh, if uh, you may have run into this, has had somewhat of a resurgence here within Western culture, uh, an appropriation, if you will, uh, as people have began to devote themselves to self-help, to uh, mindfulness, And it is the case here as well. Just as the man who delights in the word of God, so the nations meditate in vain. They mindfully plan. This is further demonstrated to us this morning as we see how they rage and they plot. The psalmist says that the kings of the earth and the rulers of this world set themselves up. They positionally place themselves. They take counsel. We do not want to miss this here, that such raging and gathering is not merely individual, but is global in scope. This is the nations, the rulers. This is global. It is not merely individual, it is communal. It's not merely personal, but political. The powers that be rage against God and his anointed, not just the individuals or uh, the peasants or the average people. And when we look at this first stanza, as it were, we see that the world rages against a God who we will see here in a moment have no victory. Look at me back in verse 3. We see this rebellious scene begin to play out verbally. And ask yourself, what does this rebellion look like? The rebellion and the rage I commend to you are kingdom specific. If you remember the first psalm that we read last week, it reminded us of the righteous man and the importance of delighting and meditating on God's word. Now there is a coming together there. You you need to see this. The man who delights uh, in the word of God and seeks after his ways is one who is seeking to uh, be in communion with God. Dr. Jim Hamilton argues from the Psalms that the one who meditates on the law of the Lord from chapter 1, again, being contrasted to uh, the nations here, um, because what they're doing is the opposite. They're not trying to commune with God. They're trying to, as the Psalm 3 says, to um, break apart the uh, bonds and the cords, right, uh, that connect both God and the anointed. Again, we want to think of every time you hear anointed uh, anointed one in the scriptures, they're talking about Jesus, right? The anointed one is the son of David, who is the Christ, who is Jesus. So make those connections. Those who want to burst the bonds and the cords of God and Christ are those who want to uh, separate from God. So the rage spills out in the only way it can in a desperate call to challenge the king in his ways. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and to cast away their cords 
from us. John Calvin even points out that people, he says, may not have openly avowed themselves rebels against God. Um, perhaps they even think God is on their side. Uh, the legendary folk singer Bob Dylan uh, has a song called With God on Our Side, which he sings and uh, becomes evident uh, that there's a lot of people here who think God is on their side, but indeed uh, they're operating uh, against, against God and his ways. May we be reminded of St. Paul this morning in Ephesians 2, who told us that we were once enemies with God. Before we came to Christ by faith, we were at enmity with God. We were like the nations who raged war against God and his anointed. So ask yourself this morning, is the battle cry of your life today, is it to wave the banner of Christ and his kingdom, or is it to seek to break the bonds of God and his Messiah in order to place yourself on the throne? Pastor Zach mentioned to us last week that if you were to go and have a conversation with a handful of people about Jesus, you will soon realize that Jesus changes things. I want to challenge you this morning to contemplate which Jesus it is that we are discussing. Here, the son of David is portrayed as a king as one that will rule despite the hostile attempts of national and political leaders to oppose him. There are countless times, brothers and sisters, in our own lives where we are tempted to join those around us for that which is popular and or that which feels good or right, when indeed what we ought to be doing is delighting in the ways of Christ. There may even be some among us today who are being lured by the testimony that Jesus looks like a version of us, merely deified. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, are you being conformed to the image of Christ or are you conforming Jesus to the image of self? God's response to such rage is comedy and fury. Look with me into our second stanza this morning. Verses four through six, I've entitled The Plan of the Anointed. As we move through this scene here, we have seen the nation's rage, and now we see God's response. Verses four through six, psalmist says to us, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, in verses 4 through 6, God, in response to the plotting and the rebellion of the kings and the rulers of this world, is laughter. He holds them in derision. And do not get this wrong. He does not laugh merely because this rebellion is hilarious. Think of that la-la-la from the hyenas, right? This isn't merely hilarious to God. Rather, such rebellion is akin to a child thinking they can take the military on in combat. This would be like a toddler child, the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, 
puffing out their chest and telling their dad in his prime they could take him on one-on-one. Except all of these analogies themselves are a bit silly because God is sovereign over all things. And the very breath by which the nations rage and plot is given to them and sustained by the God that they rage against. So why is this comical to God? It's because the kings and the rulers of this world are impotent to overthrow God's plan, and God has a plan. Despite their efforts, the king has been set on Zion, the holy hill. God holds them. Hear this this morning. God holds them in derision. He is disgusted at the sight of such a rebellion, and his response to such a rebellion is Jesus Christ. In verse 6, David's son is the true king who is set on Zion. John Calvin offers us a Christ-centered interpretation of this song, and while lengthy, it is too good to quote. It is too good not to quote in full. So here are the words of John Calvin this morning. He says, But it is now high time to come to the substance of the type, that David prophesied concerning Christ is clearly manifest from this, that he knew his own kingdom to be merely a shadow. And in order to learn to apply to Christ whatever David in times past saying concerning himself, we must hold this principle, which we meet with everywhere in all the prophets, that he with his posterity was made king, not so much for his own sake, but as to be a type of the Redeemer. See, David was self-aware of, this, of the truth that he was speaking of a future heir. An heir for whose kingdom would have no end. Dr. Al just taught us about the Davidic kingdom in our Bible hour just a couple weeks ago. And he reminded us that Jesus will reign in peace and righteousness and that his kingdom will have no end. The scope of this reign, David knew to be global and David knew it to be eternal. So the nations have raged and they have plotted against the messianic rule of the son of David, and God's response is severity. If you think that God is not a God of justice, please hear the warnings of the Psalms and the prophets. God will not be mocked. Nor will he ultimately be challenged. God will not be mocked nor challenged, neither by the kings and rulers of this world or the counselors of this world. As we move forward in our song, let us look down to stanza three, verses seven through nine. The psalmist says this. He says, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we've seen that the plan of the anointed has been set. God has placed Christ on the holy hill of Zion, and the decree here comes down. The language of Yahweh here to David, it says, You are my son, points to a particularly close relationship 
within Jewish religion that God would have had or would have been expected to have with the anointed one. Now, we are a Christian church who adheres to historical Orthodox Christianity, and so we know that to be awfully close, right? We believe in the triune God, one God in three persons. But even uh, within the Hebrew uh, religion to this day would tell you that there is a close relationship between God and his anointed. You see, David here, when he writes, he understands that this language, uh, this, this being used, the Son of God, that it refers to the Messiah. It refers to the one because David knew there would be one to come after him. If you're reading this morning in an ESV Bible, it actually capitalizes the S here, right? Instead of uh, the, the, the son, uh, you are my son, lowercase, they actually use an uppercase S in order to uh, create that designation for you, right? This is uh, someone uh, who's distinct, right? The son. The future son of God and the son of David, uh, as mentioned earlier in Acts 13, this is the second place where, uh, where the New Testament authors quote this psalm explicitly. Acts 4 and Acts 13. Acts 13 uses this phrase, the son of God, to point directly to Jesus. In verse 8, look at back at verse 8 with me. It says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, while verse 8 speaks of the inheritance that Jesus obtains, verse 9 uh, reminds us that uh, Jesus reigns. So, verse 8 gives us the gift, and verse 9 speaks of his reign. This gift, this inheritance of the nations is given to Jesus as a true son of David. We know from the New Testament that Jesus has indeed, he's won a great victory, that he's won uh, a people that God has given to him, the elect, a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 reminds us of this truth of a promised kingdom where God's anointed Jesus has people from every nation and tribe and tongue to build his everlasting kingdom. Again, verse 9 demonstrates the reign of Jesus. Matthew 18 shows us a prime example of how Jesus, having been resurrected, now reigns and has been given authority all authority in heaven and earth. It's like Abraham Kuyper has famously stated, there is no place in which Jesus doesn't reign. There is no sphere in this world for which Christ does not reign, whether that is in China, Brazil, Japan, Norway, the U.S., the depths to which submarines can't reach, the highest peaks of any mountain. One thing we know is that Jesus' reign is sure. The book of Revelation in Revelation 2, 12, 19, and virtually all over reminds us that Jesus reigns. And he does so as the psalmist predicts and points out with an iron scepter. And he does so from a position of power, and indeed his judgments are shattering to those who do not follow him. 
In verse 9 here, we also see that this destruction is a theme picked up from Psalm 1, verses 6, for those who will not obey and follow God and his king. In Psalm 1, it is the way of the wicked individual which leads to destruction. Here in Psalm 2, it is the wicked nations in which God's king, Jesus Christ, will bring destruction upon. Let us continue our song this morning with what I have termed in verses uh, 10 through 12, this last stanza, the warning of the anointed. And may we hear it this morning. The psalmist tells us, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh and with fear. And rejoice with trembling. And kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In verses 10 through 12, Steve Lawson remarks that all believers are called upon by the Lord to bow before the sun before it is too late. The Bible in countless places, both Old Testament and New Testament, points us to the love and the grace of God. But here this morning, the warning is present and it is sure. The warning goes out to kings to be wise. And while it is important not to miss the distinction being made here to kings and rulers, rather than perhaps than say to individuals particularly, we, we ought to note that the Bible is for all of us. There is a sense in which we need to heed the warning at a personal level here. We've been warned. If you're sitting here this morning and can hear my words and can understand what I am saying, you've been warned. So I ask you, what idolatry project in your life right now, right now, is tempting you to abandon Christ and to begin to rage against him? What in your life is trying to draw you away from Christ? to burst those bonds and those cords between God and his anointed one? What in your life is tempting you to go down a path to fill in the blank, whatever it is, to tell you that that is more satisfying than life with Christ? And then to ask yourself, have you even begun to contemplate the echoes of God's laughter and scorn, of his derision and his correction. I promise you this morning that if you ever begin to doubt or question whether God loves you, there is no more sure affirmation than the nail-pierced hands of your Savior and the empty tomb. Jesus has suffered. Jesus has put it on the line. Jesus reigns, and he will walk with you. So be warned. Be warned this morning. Follow the ways of the righteous. Delight in his will and walk in his ways. John Calvin once more said, the beginning of true wisdom is when a man lays aside his pride and submits himself to the authority of Christ. So brothers and sisters, serve and rejoice. That is what we are called to do. That is what we are called to do 
by those who have received the gospel by faith alone in Christ alone. We've noted this here before, but the Reformed tradition has always defined faith with these three facets. It's knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. You must know the content of the gospel. You must know what the gospel is. That God is holy and that God is creator. That we have all fallen in sin and that we live perpetually for our own glory. That we, because of that, deserve eternal judgment. That Christ was born. That he lived a sinless life. That he died on the cross in our place for our sins that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus on the third day rose again from the dead and is now ascended to the right hand of his Father where he rules and reigns. That is the gospel. But that is not enough. One must also assent, knowledge and assent. You must assent that that is true. You must agree that these things happened. But as we mentioned week in and week out here, that is not enough. And to bring us back to our psalm this morning, that is not enough because you still at that point find yourselves ultimately seeking to burst the bonds of God and his anointed still. Until you, and this is the third facet of faith, until you trust, until you place your trust in Jesus alone, then you have not faith. So the call comes out this morning for you. Kiss the son. Acknowledge the son because he's the king. The psalmist cries out to you this morning, be wise. We compel you, be wise. Brothers and sisters, lay down your weapons. You cannot win. And God will not be mocked. After all, it is Christ Jesus, the ruling and reigning king, sitting at the right hand of the Father. So repent, believe, rejoice, and serve. I would, as the pastor who gets to serve you this morning in preaching the word, would fail you this morning if I did not spend some time to highlight that this song, this poem, does address the warning to the kings of this world to the rulers and the counselors. So it must be made clear that the Messiah is not only the king of our hearts individually, personally, but is the king of the world. Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, President Biden, the paramount leader of China, kings and rulers of the past, present, all those to come, those we like and those we don't like, they have received their warning. May we always choose to wave the banner of Christ in his kingdom. For that, brothers and sisters, is where our allegiance lies. Jesus gets to be king because Jesus is the king. And we are delighted this morning, delighted to stand in his kingdom. Pastor Andrew just stood up and led us in the confession and pardon right? We confess so that we may delight in his will and walk in his ways.
Let us live like that is true. In verse 12, look back with me. There is this phrase, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And admittedly, there is some interesting interpretive matters here, but the consensus among virtually all commentators is that this poetic picture, albeit maybe awkward for us in 2023 Western culture, is this. To kiss the son is to acknowledge Jesus as the king, to pay homage and to submit to his rule. God will not put up with injustice. And here again, we have a call to those faced with the Christ to either rebel or to submit. You can kiss the son or you can rage against him. That is the decision for you this morning. So again, we implore you as pastors here at Christ Community Church, if you are not trusting in Jesus, consider the king on the throne. The gospel is true. The gospel is good. The gospel is reasonable. And if you will place your trust in Jesus alone, by faith alone, then you will join the long lines of the saints of old who've lined the way to kiss the sun. Jesus will reign with peace and righteousness as the Davidic covenant has laid out. Jesus is reigning now. Jesus is reigning now, and if you need examples, please come see me. See one of the pastors, the deacons, um, and we would love to share with you ways in which the reigning King Jesus has just showered us with blessings. Jesus will not let sin go unpunished. Jesus is angry with sin. And if you do not believe and trust in him, you will perish in the way. It's what he says. These aren't my words. These are the words of the Holy Scripture. If you will not, as we'll see here in a moment, take refuge, you will not find shelter in the wings, you will perish in the way. Jesus stands by the broken and not the elite. Jesus stands by those in need, not those that don't want his help. Jesus will not stand in the face of oppression, sin, suffering, and death and wink at it. Jesus paid the price with his own life. That is how sure you can be this morning that God is serious about taking sin seriously. None of us here, nobody in this room, is only kind of sinful. You, I, we are the kind of sinful that cost Jesus his life. Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father, and from the perspective of broken sinners, that is good news. When Jesus returns, we will experience finally and fully the shalom that his kingdom promised in the Davidic kingdom. Then and now, brothers and sisters, blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is the sweetness of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're feeling down or feeling 
um, guilty or whatever, wherever you find yourself, that's what you need to hear this morning. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Are you sitting here trying to be your own king, trying to be the king in whatever environment you find yourself? Lay them down. Lay your weapons down. Jesus is a king, and you will be blessed, and you will receive his grace and mercy if you take him by faith this morning. I want to leave us this morning with three pastoral exhortations or three things that we want to draw from this psalm. The first is that Psalm 2 is Christ-centered. Um, so I was given this psalm, I began to study and, and research. Um, again, I was quickly pointed to the book of Acts where the church is exploding everywhere. And what you see the New Testament do, which is where you see it do all over the New Testament, is that it interprets the Old Testament in light of the New in a Christ-centered way. Psalm 2 shows us the son of David, God's anointed Messiah, his king. As Pastor Kevin pointed out in our call to worship this morning, holy Jesus has witnessed the rage of the nations, and Jesus is still alive. As each and every one of them have collectively fallen one by one. In the early church, uh, Christians had gotten themselves in some trouble because they started saying, uh, Christ is Lord, when the banner was Caesar is Lord. Well, guess what? Rome has fallen, and Jesus is still sitting at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 2 is Christ-centered. Number two, Psalm 2 is eschatological. Psalm 2 is eschatological. That is, that Psalm 2 points us forward to the culmination of God's kingdom. The kingdom of Christ, that which was promised to David's son, shows us that God's opposition to the wicked is politically motivated. Jesus will share the throne with no one. This song or this poem makes clear that while the nations rage, there is no dualism here. None whatsoever. The reason God laughs is because this victory is sure. There is no doubt about it. Jesus, as we know, reigns at the right hand of the Father and will continue to do so forever. Psalm 2 is eschatological. Jesus is the king over the eternal kingdom. And finally, Psalm 2 is missional. This song ends with letting the reader or the hearer Know that the wrath of God's anointed is quickly kindled. How beautiful. That's one of the most beautiful things about the confession and pardon we do every week is we get to hear the pardon. And I hope that means something deeply for you because we are sinners, right? We show up every week. I just taught my kids this last week. I said, how often do we teach them about the sacraments and how often do we, you know, get baptized? How often do we do the, the Lord's Supper and we say, we do this every week, talking about the confession. We do it every week because we are sinners, and there's not a single week that we show up in which we are no longer a sinner. Beautiful is the pardon that comes down. His wrath is quickly kindled. He is quick to forgive us. And blessed are those 
who take refuge in him. To kiss the son again is to acknowledge Jesus is the king of kings and your rightful place under his rule. And Psalm 2 tells us this beautiful story, and if we will believe, we will have a place in his kingdom as well. I mentioned earlier that the big theme of the Psalms was this. God will save his people through Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the keeper of God's law. Every bit of that is important. Today our four stanzas showed us how the nations rage, and then in the second and Third, we saw how God, has, uh, how God has a plan and how God has set down his decree to reign. Then finally, in the last stanza, we saw that God has sent his warning. God has sent his warning to us so that we will take refuge in him. Jesus Christ is the son of David in Psalm 2 just as he is a Psalm 1 righteous man. He's the keeper of God's law, and he's the one who saves the elect. The song, Be Prepared, is but one example from that chief villain, Scar, that reminds us of our own rebellious desire to unseat the rightful king and to place ourselves on his throne. One of the reasons that the Lion King has struck a nerve to all of us is that we instinctively understand kingdom language. We know what it means to strive to be on top, to seek after glory. But Jesus has accomplished the Father's plan. And Jesus sits. He's a sitting priest. His work is done. He reigns at the right hand of the Father, so that you can receive the blessed hope and peace of his promised kingdom. So today, believe the gospel by faith alone. Kiss the sun. Be wise. Be prepared. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come in prayer on this Sunday to raise the banner of Christ and his kingdom. And we would ask for your grace and your mercy to propel us forward in faithfulness. As we prepare now for the Holy Eucharist, we would ask that you would challenge the hearts of those here that if they are not trusting in Jesus today, not having had made a commitment in the past, but if they are not trusting in Jesus today, if they want to live and plot and rage this week, Lord Jesus, please, would you stop them in their seat? But this is your table, and this table is but a signpost to each other and to this community that you reign, you will forever reign, and we have the blessed hope the refuge of getting to dine with you. We love you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of our anointed King Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.